Well, today we're going to continue our series that we began last Sunday, our Easter series, which is entitled Three. And we began to talk about three days in the last week of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, three moments in each of those days, and then three decisions that we need to make in light of what Jesus did. And I said this last Sunday, I want to say it again, that the life and the death of Jesus Christ demands a response. Right? You can't just look at what Jesus did and who Jesus says that he is and not respond to that. And no response is a response. Amen. If you say, I'm not going to respond to what Jesus did, then you're making a response. You're rejecting the life and the death of Jesus Christ. So his life and his death demands that we make a decision in light of what he has done. And so we're going to kind of walk through that today as we look at, the, at, at another day in the life of Jesus. Last Sunday... Uh, we actually talked about Palm Sunday. Today is actually Palm Sunday. Uh, but last Sunday, we talked about Palm Sunday. We talked about it was the first day uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. And in that one day, Jesus did three specific things that we talked about. We talked about how that he declared his identity. He kind of came out and boldly declared, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the one that you've been looking for. He also established his authority. We talked about how he went into the temple and drove out uh, those that were selling in the temple. And he declared that he was the great high priest establishing a new covenant between God and man. And then he demonstrated his love as he wept over the city and over the people. And I literally believe looked through time and space and saw me and you sitting here today. And he wept over our world and over the world that we're living in as people continue to turn away from the one who came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So today we're going to look at one of the another day, the second day in the life of the last week of Jesus' life, and we're going to look at what is called the day of Passover. Uh, Passover comes four days after Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, according to the Jewish calendar, is on the 10th day of Nizan. Passover is on the 14th day of Nizan, 14 days later. And what we're going to do today is we're literally going to look at that 24-hour period leading up to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're going to literally read through the scriptures this morning. we got a lot of scripture reading. And we're just going to read through the scriptures and look at that last 24 hours in his life before he dies on the cross and is buried. So let's go ahead and kind of jump in this morning. We're going to start in Matthew 26. We're going to conclude reading from the Gospel of John. And of course, all the Gospel writers give an account of the death of Jesus Christ and that last day in his life. And we're not going to be able to pull all that together, but I tried to give us what I believe to be a pretty good biblical picture of the last 24 hours in Jesus' life. So it starts in Matthew 26. If you got your Bibles or if you want to follow along with us on the screen, we're going to start in verse 17. The Bible says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. And tell the man, tell him, the teacher says, my time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. And when it was evening, I'm going to stop right there and just pause for just a second, because what you need to understand is that the Jewish calendar, they marked a day by the evening. So a brand new day started in the evening when the sun set around 6 o'clock. And so their day went from 6 p.m. in the night, in the evening, to 6 p.m. the next, next day. That's how they marked today. And you can trace that back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that when God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says the evening and the morning 
were the first day. So God marked time by an evening and a morning. We marked time by morning and night, right? So when we got up this morning, it was a brand new day. Well, actually, today started yesterday at 6 p.m. if we were living according to the Jewish calendars. That kind of makes sense. And the reason that's important is because right now we are about to start into the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he dies and is buried uh, from coming off the cross. So this is when it is happening. So when it was evening, this was the beginning of Passover, four days after Palm Sunday. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12 disciples. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, that one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each of them, each one asked in turn, am I the one Lord? And he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scripture declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it to pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, and said, Each of you drank from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Literally, Jesus just implemented what we call communion. He had eaten the Passover meal with them. They had had the lamb, the bitter herbs, and now Jesus breaks out the bread and breaks out the wine, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood. He literally implemented what we would consider to be the very first communion. Now look at the next verse, verse 36. It says, and then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, which are James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And one of the gospel writers actually says that Jesus' sweat became literally as great drops of blood. He went a little further and bowed his face to the ground praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest, but look, the time has come for the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Now, just before you give the disciples a really hard time, about this time that they're sleeping, it's actually midnight. So I don't know how many midnight prayer warriors we got in the house, but I found out not many. Right? And so don't give them too hard of a time. It is midnight, probably from 9 to 12. We assume we know Jesus prayed for one hour the first time. We kind of assume maybe he prayed for an hour each other time. So from 9 to 12, they're in the garden, and they couldn't keep their eyes open. Can I get an amen from somebody you know what I'm talking about? All right, so don't be too hard on them. So verse 46, he says, Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs, and they had been sent by the leading priests and the elders of the people. 
The traitor Judas had given them this prearranged signal. You will know the one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. And Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. And then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus, we know that to be Peter from another gospel, poured out his sword, struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scripture be fulfilled that describes what must happen now? Matthew 27. And very early in the morning, so from 6 p.m. now, they've been up all night long. It is now early in the morning. The leading priest and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus replied, you have said it. Basically, he says, yes, I am. I am the king of the Jews. And so it goes on, verse 12, And then the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, but Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. And this year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowd gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. And just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Now, she literally is just waking up, okay? This is early in the morning, it's proof that most guys get up before their wives. Can I get an amen from someone? Just kidding. All the wives out there are saying, not in my house. So she has this dream. She tells Pilate, leave this man alone. Verse 20. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. And Pilate responded, what then, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that, the riot, that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water, washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered that Jesus was flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it upon his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. And then they led him away 
to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus had lost so much blood at this point, he was unable to carry his own cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And the soldiers gave him wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And, they, and after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. John chapter 19. And standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene were. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that was John, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his own home. And Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he says, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked it in a sponge, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. And then when Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. And then he bowed his head and he released his spirit. It was a day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering their legs to be broken, and then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also can believe. And these things happened in fulfillment of the scripture that said, No one, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one that they have pierced. And afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away, and with him came Nicodemus. Y'all remember Nicodemus? The man who had come to Jesus at night, he brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment from, made from mirth and aloe. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spice in a long sheet of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let me just say this to you today. This 24 hours, literally, we just read a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus, the last day of his life before his death. And as I was praying and studying and kind of thinking through this scripture and just all the things that happened in that 24-hour period, I just realized that this 24 hours in the life of Jesus was just jam-packed full of so much hope, so much truth, and so much power. And I was just reminded of, I don't know if any of you guys have ever owned a mini storage, any mini storage folks in the house today? Anybody ever rented a mini storage before? Okay, I said own. Nobody owned one. That's good. I'm glad. So, Well, several years ago when Kelly and I moved to ARAB, we, we rented a little mini storage and we put a bunch of extra stuff in it that we didn't need. And about once every year or two, we go roll up the, cur the door, and we look at it, and we're like, oh, my gosh, we can't do that today, and we pull it back down. <laughs> As I was thinking about the last 24 hours in the life of Jesus, I thought it was kind of like rolling up that mini store's door. It is so jam-packed with so many things, it's a little bit overwhelming. 
But then I began to think as the Holy Spirit kind of began to speak, he said, Keith, he said, you know what will happen the moment that you crack into that mini stories, don't you? He said, you'll find hidden treasures. Right? Have you ever been going through a closet and you found something you forgot you'd put in the back of the closet? You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was in here. Well, guess what will happen? The moment that we dive into this last day in the life of Jesus, we're going to begin to unpackage some treasures that I hope we've never seen before. But I want to challenge you with something today because today I'm going to look at three of them. I'm going to look at three that I really felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me that I wanted to share with you today. But I want to challenge you to do something this week. As we lead into Easter, why don't you, why don't you meditate on the scripture we just read today. Why don't you go back over these scriptures and just take a fresh look at the last day in the life of Jesus? Because I believe if with a sincere heart and a hungry heart, if you'll look at that last day in the life of Jesus, I believe that like running through that mini storage, you'll begin to pull out some treasures and you'll begin to see some things maybe you've never seen. You'll begin to hear some things from the whispers of the Holy Spirit that maybe you've never heard before. And we'll be able to walk into this Easter season with some revelation that maybe we've never had before. So that's just my little pastoral challenge to you this week, okay? Why don't we unpack the little mini storage of the life of Jesus and look into that last day in his life this week and take that to heart this week. So I want to give you three that kind of jumped out to me. Look at that first point on your outline. So on Passover, on Passover, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. Jesus accepts the cup of suffering. And Jesus dies for the sins of the world. He submits to the Father, he accepts the cup of suffering, and then he ultimately dies for the sins of the world. And I want to talk about those three things today. Three moments in the last day of Jesus' life. Let's talk about submitting to the will of the Father. In the garden, look at that next point. In the garden, Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father. Now, as I was studying this, the Holy Spirit gave me a little thought. He said, Keith, he said, Jesus did not surrender to the Father. He submitted to the Father. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I've used the word surrender and submit almost interchangeable, right? And you've probably heard me and you've probably heard other people say, you've got to surrender your life to God. You've got to surrender your life to God. You've got to surrender your life to God. But this week I got a revelation that I don't believe God wants our surrender. I believe God wants our submission. And as I began to pray over that and the Holy Spirit began to speak to me, he began to show me some things. He said, Keith, recognize some things about surrender. Jesus didn't surrender to the Father because surrender is what you do to your enemies. Think about that. When you surrender, who do you surrender to? Your enemies. In military battles, when an army surrenders to another army and they wave the white flag, they are literally declaring, we are surrendering to our enemies. And how many know God the Father is not your enemy? And he wasn't Jesus' enemy either. Amen? And surrender is also an act of self-preservation. When a king in battle surrenders to another king, he's literally saying, I'm going to surrender to you so you don't kill me. I'm going to surrender to you so you don't kill my family. I'm going to surrender to you so you don't burn down my city. I'm going to surrender to you. And it's really an act of self-preservation when a person surrenders they're actually at the end of their rope and they're trying to save their life 
But submission is more than that. Submission is about literally coming to God, and it is an act of love. When you submit to the Father, this is an expression of your love to God. Jesus in the garden submitted his will to the will of the Father. It was an act of love. It was an act of loving obedience to the heart of of the Father. It wasn't surrender because God, I'm going to bow to you because you're oppressing me. It was submission because it was God, I love you and I want to follow after you. Look at that next point. Let's unpackage this just a little bit more. Surrender says I have to do what you say, but submission says I want to be a part of what you're doing. Surrender says, I have to do what you say. When you surrender to your enemy, you become a prisoner of war. Let me just tell you something today. Holy Spirit said this very clear. He said, Keith, I don't want prisoners. I want sons and daughters. I don't want prisoners. See, when, 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 a, when a person surrenders in the battlefield, they become a prisoner of war. And now they have to do what the person they surrendered to tells them to do or else they will die. I have to go where you tell me to go. I have to do what you tell me to do. I have to live like you tell me to live or else you will kill me because I am a prisoner to you. I want to tell you something today. Jesus did not become a prisoner of the Father. He submitted to the will of the Father because he was a son who loved the Father. God is calling us to a place not of surrender, but a place of submission. Not where we have to serve God, but where we choose to be a part of what God is doing. See, through submission, you say, I want to be a part of what you're doing. Jesus understood something. You remember what he said in the garden? When, when Peter cut the ear off the servant, Peter said, don't you know? I could have asked the Father and he'd sent thousands of angels and instantly they would have rescued us. But then he says in the very next scripture, he says, but how would the scripture have been fulfilled? How would the plan of God's redemption been accomplished? How would the bigger picture been brought to fulfillment? Let me give you a revelation today. Your life's bigger than you. Your life is bigger than you. And if you just live your life for you, you're living short of the glory of God. Let me give you, that's a definition of sin. The sin is to come short of the glory of God. And if you live your life for you, you're in sin. Because you're coming short of the glory of God. Let me tell you why. Because there's a bigger picture. God wants you, just as Jesus, Jesus was the ultimate redeemer. But God wants us to be a part of his plan of redemption in the lives of other people. See, that's why I think it is impossible for you to faithfully follow Christ and sit in a pew the rest of your life. We don't have pews. I say that all the time, right? Sit in a chair the rest of your life and never serve God. Why? Because God wants you not to surrender. God wants you to submit. God wants you to recognize there's something bigger than you. And just as Jesus in the garden said, God, I want to be a part of your work of redemption. I don't want to be a prisoner that's let off to the battlefield I want to be a part I want to submit to the will of the Father so I can be a part of what you're doing in the earth and when we submit to the will of the Father we get to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and I found out the best way to live my life is in the will of God because not only do I get to be a part of what he's doing but that's the blessed best place I can live my life amen
Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary, he made this statement one time. Someone asked him, aren't you afraid to go to the places where they kill Christians? He said, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And if God sends you there, that's the safest place you can be. Because submission, submission is not about have to. Submission is about saying, I want to be a part of what you're doing. And then the Holy Spirit said, he said, Keith, think about it. When a person surrenders, they relinquish their authority. Right? The moment you become that prisoner, the moment you wave that white flag, you literally become a prisoner. You relinquish your authority. That king that surrenders to another king, that army that surrenders to another army, they relinquish all their authority. They're no longer in charge. They're no longer making decisions. They're no longer calling the shots. They're now prisoners of war that are being led by their enemies. He said, but when you submit to the will of God, it releases authority. Surrender relinquishes your authority. But the greatest place of authority in Christ is that place of submission. Every time I submit to the will of God, there's authority that's released. Every time I submit to the plan of God, there's power that comes. Every time I submit to the thing that God is calling me to do, there is grace and there is wisdom and there is strength and there is authority to do the thing that God has called us to do. Have you ever done something that God was telling you to do and in your mind you thought, there's no way I can do it and before you know it, you actually did it? <laughs> you ever been there done that? You ever had God work through you in a way that even blew your own mind? You ever had God do some things in your life and through your life that you thought were impossible and even when you were stepping out in faith you were still thinking in the back of your mind this is never going to work but somehow it worked because it's in that place of submission that you release that God releases a new level of authority that you can walk in what you've never walked in before on the day of his death think about this Jesus modeled how to live life on the day of his death, he modeled how to live life in a place of submission. Not surrender, because God's not my enemy, but submission where I joyfully and lovingly join myself to the plan of God so I can experience the power of God to build the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful thing. James chapter 4, the, 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 James gives us a little snippet here. He says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You want to know where your authority comes from over the enemy? It comes from submission. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Until you submit, it's going to be hard to resist. <laughs> because your authority and your power to overcome the enemy comes from your submission to the will of God and the purpose of God for your life. Look at that next point. Jesus not only submitted to the will of the Father, but Jesus accepted the cup of suffering. He accepted the cup of suffering, and immediately he begins to drink from it. Think about it. When he wakes the disciples up that last time, he's just for about three hours been in intercession with the Father, surrendering his, not surrendering, submitting his will, submitting his will, submitting his will to the Father. And he says, Lord, I'm going to drink this cup of suffering. Because this is part of the plan that you have for my life. A part of your bigger plan to bring redemption to the earth. And I'm going to drink the cup of this suffering. And immediately he begins to drink from it. I want you to say, immediately when he wakes the disciples up, here comes Judas. And Judas betrays him. One of his twelve, one of his closest, one of his friends. He literally calls Judas his friend when he kisses him on the cheek. And says, my friend, do what you've come to do. Betrayal. 
Not only does Judas betray him, but the disciples abandon him. They scatter like sheep without a shepherd. They leave. They, they follow along in the shadows. Nobody stands up. Nobody boldly says, hey, he is the Christ. Leave him alone. Peter ends up denying him. The same Peter that said, I will never, I'll die for you, Jesus, is the same Peter that before the rooster crows denies that he even knows Jesus three times. The crowds reject him. The people that just four days earlier, the people four days earlier that said, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are now those very same people four days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds reject him. And the soldiers beat and torture him, mocking him, spitting on him, stripping him naked before the world. And all that is significant. Let me tell you why it's significant. It's significant. It's significant because Jesus suffered. I think a lot of times when we think about the suffering that Jesus went through, the, the whips that he took, the beatings that he took, the, the abuse that he suffered, the, the images that come through us from the movie The Passion of the Christ, we think about that. We think about the physical agony that he endured going to the cross. And it is true. He suffered overwhelming physical agony. But he not only suffered physical agony, he suffered mental and emotional agony. The betrayal, the rejection, the abandonment, the mockery, the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment, everything and anything that you and I could have ever imagined going through, he suffered it a hundred times over. And in that one 24-hour period, every kind of emotional, emotional pain that a person could feel, he felt. Every kind of mental anguish that an individual literally could be put under the torment that would come against his mind as the very people that he was dying for were rejecting him and his disciples were abandoning him and the soldiers were mocking him and they were stripping him and embarrassing him and public humiliation. All these things that were coming against his mind and against his emotions and not only just his body and he did it all. He did it all that we might be healed and made whole. He is the healer of the brokenhearted. He is the one that puts our lives together. I was, I was thinking about this and praying about this and, and I thought about how that his cup of suffering literally has become our cup of blessing. His cup of suffering has become our cup of blessing. The beating, the abuse, the physical, mental, and emotional agony that he endured during that 24-hour period. His his cup of suffering becomes our cup of blessing. His brokenness becomes our healing. His anguish becomes our peace. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, or excuse me, Isaiah 53. He says, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. And there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellions. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own and God laid on him the sins of us all. 
as I thought about that and I thought about the price that he paid, the suffering that he endured, not just his death, but his suffering, I began to think about, you know, just for Jesus, logistically, for Jesus to redeem us and reconcile us to the Father. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. All he really had to do was die, was live a sinless life and die a sinless death. All he had to do was die for us. But he didn't just die for us. He suffered for us. Mentally, emotionally, and physically. And let me tell you why. He suffered for us because the goal was not just to get you to heaven. The goal was to get heaven to earth. The goal was to bring the power of God and the grace of God and the healing of the Lord. The goal was that when you came to Christ, you could be made whole. That you could be saved, set free, and made whole by the power of God. So that you didn't have to live the rest of your life as a broken person. But you could be redeemed and restored emotionally, mentally, and physically through the power of the gospel. So that you could be a healthy person who's been made whole by the blood of the Lamb. Reaching out into a broken world that needs to see the power of the gospel made real in people's lives and he accepted that cup of suffering so that we could be healed and whole so that there would be nothing that you could endure mentally emotionally or physically that would be outside the scope of his suffering and that when he bore it on himself he bore it so that you and I could be healed because he is the healer of the brokenhearted. Amen? Look at that last point, or not the last point, but the last thing we want to look at. Jesus died. Jesus died. He submitted to the will of the Father. He accepted the cup of suffering. And then Jesus died for the sins of the world. His death broke the devil's power. He set us free. His death set us free from the fear of death. His death reconciled us to the Father, bringing us by faith into right standing with God. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to look when the Bible says, Because God's children are human beings, that's me and you, made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being, listen to this, for only as a human being could he die. And look at this next little phrase. And only by dying, you ought to underline that in your Bible, only by dying, only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had, had, who had the power of death. And only in this way, by dying, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Only by dying could he break the power of the enemy. Only by dying could he set us free from the power of sin and Satan and liberate us so we would no longer be slaves to sin but sons and daughters of God. Only by dying could he set us free from the fear of death so that we can face death as the apostle Paul did and say for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. That we can look at death and we can run toward the day of our death knowing that our last breath here is our first breath there and that we no longer have to fear the sting of death. And the moment you're no longer afraid to die is the moment that you can fully begin to live. And only by death could he do that. Only by his death on the cross could he break the power of Satan. Only by death on the cross could he set us free from the fear of death. And only by death on the cross could he reconcile us to the Father. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
It says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He has given us this wonderful message of reconciliation. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. King James says, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? It was in that moment that God laid on Jesus the sins of the world. See, the wages of sin is death. If you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually. They were spiritually separated from the Father. And on the cross, for the first time in Jesus' entire existence, he felt what it was like to be separated from the Father. As God laid on him, he who knew no sin became sin for me and you. And he felt the sting of that separation. And for the first time in the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus calls God his God and not his Father. Every other time Jesus returns, refers to God, he calls God his Father. But on the cross, as he bears the weight of the world and the sins of the world, my sin and your laid on him, he felt the sting of death, which is separation from the Father. And he reconciles. The word reconciled is an accounting word. It means to settle, to bring, to settle the accounts, to bring it to being paid and settled, owing nothing. Jesus settled your account. He actually went back, as we've talked about before, and settled Adam's account. So that all who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Man, the gospel is good news, guys. This is so so good. So our decisions today, let's look at it real quick. Today's decision is, I hope, pretty obvious and maybe not as simple, but it is obvious. I want to ask you the question today, are you submitted to God? Are you submitted to God? See, submission is not a one-time thing, it's a daily thing. And I think what a sad thing it would be for us to accept the sacrifice of God's Son so we could spend eternity in heaven but not submit our lives to God's Son while we're here on earth. What a sad thing that would be. To know that we've received a gift of eternal life but at the same time that we would forfeit the fullness of that life while we're here on planet earth because there is life and life abundant in Him that only comes through submission. And it may cost you the death of your flesh in some areas of your life, but it will also bring the life of His Spirit that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. So today we need to ask ourselves, am I submitted to God? The second thing is, do you believe? Do you really believe that by His stripes you are healed and made whole? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that by His stripes you're healed and made whole. Let me just ask you this question. If you believe that, then why are you still holding on to the pain of yesterday? Why are you still holding on to the shame and guilt of your mistakes from your past? Why are you still holding on to the hurt and abandonment and betrayal of other people? Why are you still allowing the pain of your past to control your present? If you really believe that he suffered 
mentally, physically, and emotionally so you could be healed and made whole, then why are you still holding on to that thing that's crippling your life when he intended you not to be crippled but for you to be healed and whole so that you can be a reflection of the hope of the gospel. And then last but not least, have you accepted the sacrifice that he made for your sins? This is a salvation question. This is an eternal question. Have you accepted the sacrifice that he made for your sin? The Bible is very clear. There is only one sacrifice for sin, and it is Jesus. And if you reject the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for your sins, then there remains no more sacrifice for your sin, the Bible says. There's no other way. Your good works, your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are without hope, dead in our sins, separated from God. But through Christ, amen, we can be saved. We can be born again. I want to read to you John chapter 1. We read it last week. I want to read it again. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. It says, But to all who believed Him, speaking of Jesus, and accepted Him, He gave the right to become the children of God. And they are reborn, born again. Think about it. You can start over today. Born again, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So I want us to do this today. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. And I want to ask you that significant question today. Have you accepted the sacrifice that he made for your sins? Have you accepted that sacrifice? Have you accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior and say, God, today I want to be born again? See, I realize that most of us, specifically here in the South, most of us have acknowledged God. And we've acknowledged Jesus. But acknowledging Him and accepting Him is a different thing. Acknowledging that He is who He says He is is one thing, but accepting the sacrifice that He made for your sins. This is what it means. In order to accept the sacrifice that He made for your sins, it means you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. It means you have to acknowledge that if you were to stand before God right now in your own righteousness and goodness, you would come up short, that it would not be enough. And what happens many times is the enemy, the devil, tries to get us to compare ourselves to other people. Well, you're better than them. Well, you don't do what they do, and you haven't lived like they've lived. But I want you to understand today, there's only one comparison that will matter. And that is, how do you compare to Christ? He was sinless and perfect, without fault and without failure. And any of us on our best day would still come short in comparison to perfection. I've met a lot of good people, but I've never met one person that really, even in their truest heart of hearts, believed they were perfect. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is a sacrifice that God made through Jesus that frees us from the power of sin and grants us eternal life so that we can be born again. So if that's you this morning, whether you're in person, whether you're watching online, I want you to do something really simple. Just raise your hand. Just a simple act of faith today that says, Today, Pastor Keith, I want to be born again. Today, I want to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. I've acknowledged Him, but I've never really accepted Him. But today's my day. If that's you, I want you just to raise your hand. If you're watching online, just hit that little hand emoji. 
and just raise your hand or type in the comment box. I'm raising my hand today because we want to pray with you. We're about to pray together with those that are here and those that are online, and this is your moment. Don't miss it. Today's my day, Pastor Keith. I'm willing to accept Christ. I acknowledge I'm a sinner, and I realize today I need a Savior. And I believe there's no other sacrifice except for Jesus. I want to trust Him as my Lord. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just to pray this prayer with me. With every head bowed, every eye closed, let's just say it out loud for those that are here and those that are online. If you're watching online, repeat this with me. Let's say it together. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe. Jesus bore the cup of my suffering. Died for my sins. So that I could be saved. I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the only Savior. And I ask you to save me now. Come into my heart and my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. I submit my life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord this morning. Praise the Lord this morning. Well, I want you to do something with me. If you're here today in person, if you're watching online, maybe you've got something you can use to share sacraments with us. But if you're here in person today, why don't you go ahead and open up your sacraments this morning. For those of you that are part of our online campus, let me just remind you, the fourth Sunday of every month, we share communion together. It'd be a great opportunity. We'd love for you to prepare to do that with us, even in your own homes. So today, as we prepare to receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, once you get them open, if you would, just hold them up before you to the Lord. Father, I thank you today for the body and blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you submitted to the will of the Father, that you suffered, and that your cup of suffering, Lord, today has become our cup of blessing. I thank you that your blood has created a brand new covenant, Lord, a covenant no longer based on the works of our flesh, but on the sacrifice of your Son, Father. Lord, we thank you today that those who eat your flesh and drink your blood will have life. Lord, I thank you this is the meal that heals our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our bodies. And Lord, today we believe. We believe that it is finished. We believe that nothing else has to be done other than us by faith receiving the gift of life that you've given us today. So, Father, we bless the body and blood of your Son, and we bless your people today as temples of the living God. And we honor you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us receive the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. let you stand to your feet we're going to ask the praise team to come and we're going to go back into a couple songs of worship this morning our ushers will come by in just a moment they'll pick up your sacraments the altar's open if you need to come and pray this is a great place just to do business with God we call it the altar because we're, our lives are altered at the altar amen and maybe you're here this morning as we begin to worship and maybe you realize, hey, maybe there's an area in your life that you haven't submitted to the Father. 
Maybe there's an area in your life that you haven't just submitted to what you know God is wanting you to do. And maybe you've allowed fear, insecurity, or worry to keep you from pressing into what God has for you. Today is your day. Amen. Man, this is a divine moment. This is a great opportunity just for you to do business with the Lord. And you could come to the altar and pray. You can stand right where you're at and just worship. But let's just take this time this morning. And let's celebrate the one who died that we might live, who suffered that we might be made whole. And let's not miss. Let's not, let's not push past. Let's not hurry out and push past this moment that God has given us in his presence. Because Jesus is here, amen? And he loves you. And he died for you. And he suffered for you. So we can be whole this morning. Amen. Well, we're going to worship. 